Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knut Berger. I don't think there's a person in the Northwest who isn't awed in some respect by our forests. And today we're going to talk about a remarkable woman in our history who was committed early on to the preservation of old growth forests. And that led to the creation of a remarkable state park, one that few of us know about. But there's more to the story. If you haven't already seen the video, take a moment to watch it. You can find it in the show notes or on crosscut.com. But for now, lace up your boots. We're going to go tramping back in time. Knut, I have a hard time believing that there is a Washington State Park that you hadn't been to. Tell us about this one. What led you further down the path of this story? Well, the first thing was finding out about its name. <laughs> it's, it's the Federation Forest State Park, you know, which sounds like something out of Star Trek, you know, the Federation. What is that? I happen to be talking to a historian who works for the Washington State Parks and Recreation Department. Samuel Tipka is his name. I was asking him about, you know, potential stories and things. What has he come across? And he asked me if I'd heard of this park. And I had not. And I got intrigued by what he told me, which was that the Federation of Women's Clubs in Washington State had purchased land to preserve old growth here on the west side of the Cascades, and that that land purchase had become a state park, and th that there was a woman involved in that project whose name is on the visitor center of that park, a woman named Catherine Montgomery, and that she was a very extraordinary character. And so... He told me where the, the park was. Basically, it's on the highway somewhere between Enumclaw and Crystal Mountain. So if you're going to Mount Rainier, heading toward Chinook Pass, you, you go by this park. But it's very unobtrusive. You don't really notice. I've driven by it dozens of times and never noticed it. It's right on the White River. And so this park was sort of mysterious. It, it had this weird name. There was an interesting woman involved, uh, and it was a park that's not on the tip of everyone's tongue about, you know, great state parks in Washington. What is different about the park? What is unique about the park? How did it feel to be in it? Well, it turns out it's a really lovely place. First of all, it's right on the highway. Any traffic is muffled by the roar of the White River, which is beautiful, white because the Emmons Glacier on Mount Rainier grinds the soil down and it washes down like uh, and, and gives the river a white coat. And it's, it's not a camping park. It's a day park. It's a, it's a picnic area with hiking trails. And it contains some just gorgeous old growth just right, yeah, right on the river. You're, you're not in you know, Mount Rainier National Park or anything. It's just kind of its own own place. It's a really wonderful place to stop and have a picnic and go for a walk in, in, the, in the woods. And it exists because 
back in the 1920s, a sort of powerful coalition of women in Washington state believed that old growth, particularly in the West Side, was in jeopardy. And this was the Federation? Yes, the Washington Women's Federation. They decided to raise money to buy a patch of old growth and preserve it. Was it this particular piece of land that they were interested in? No. <laughs> or they were just trying to, to get their hands on some old growth that they could preserve any place? Yeah, I think, you know, the idea was hatched in the mid-1920s. And as you can imagine, in that first early part of the 20th century in particular, extensive logging was taking its toll. And most forest land was considered loggable. I mean, there were efforts to preserve, you know, create Mount Rainier National Park or later Olympic National Park. But essentially, I think, I think the, the builders of Washington simply considered any forest uh, inexhaustible and up for grabs. You know, in that early part of the 20th century, women's clubs became a real political force. And in particular, um, it was decided by the, the women's clubs of Washington that they would undertake a campaign where they would find a precious piece of old growth, they would purchase it, uh, they would work with the government to do that and turn it into um, a park that everybody can enjoy. And this, this was part of, you know, being able to not only protect a patch of the environment, but also so that people increasingly urban dwelling people uh, in the state and in Puget Sound would have a place to go to to see what, what it used to look like. In the 20s, I can only imagine that some people thought that the supply of forests was inexhaustible. You just couldn't cut it all down. But I can also imagine that people saw that the forests were rapidly disappearing. So on one hand, it seems prescient for these women, for instance, to want to do something about it. Yeah, I think I think it was pretty amazing. And, um, you know, they undertook a statewide campaign. They had support of, you know, women's groups all over the state, rural, urban, east, west, north, south. They, they went on a fundraising campaign. There was a woman named um, Jean Caithness Greenlees who sort of headed the uh, fundraising effort. And they sold these uh, buttons that said, save a tree. They sold them for a dollar each. And uh, this was how they went about initially raising money for the envisioned park. How did they decide on this particular place? Well, that's a kind of a long story because they were successful in raising money for a piece of land, which was actually up by Snoqualmie Pass. And at that time, the, the Sunset Highway, which is now I-90, uh, was being built over the Cascades, the first real paved road to go over the Cascade Divide. 
you know, it was understood that in this kind of new auto culture that people would be traveling up there. And so they, they found a piece of land right on, uh, on the highway, you know, qualify highway. It was nothing like highways are today, right? You know, and people were going up there in their horseless carriages. And the idea was um, that this would be a, a protected area. And that, that area up there was, you know, being heavily logged and mined. And, you know, there was a lot of industry taking place. So they purchased it successfully and opened it as a park, and it immediately ran into a series of problems. One was that a logging company on adjacent land logged part of the old growth. They actually, (laughs) you know, trespassed and logged some of these beautiful trees that were meant to be preserved. Then... The highway department said, well, gee, with the highway here, we think some of these old trees uh, need to be cut short. Well, this is completely against the purpose of the, you know, acquiring the property. There was also a windstorm event that blew some of the old trees down. And I suspect that was probably due to logging in the area, you know, that these trees were now exposed in a way that maybe they hadn't been before. So essentially... This, this wonderful little preserve was already immediately being whittled down. So they worked out an agreement with the state of Washington, which was they would donate this property to the state, and that in return, the state would find a more appropriate place that wouldn't be messed up, and that they would build the park somewhere else. And that's what happened. So who was resistant to the women's club's ideas? Certainly the timber industry. Yeah, I think it was mainly uh, the timber industry, their lobbyists, politicians. There, there was a lot of debate in the early 20th century about what to preserve and what not to preserve and what the size of parks would be. And it wasn't the common thinking to protect old growth and, in fact, you know, protections for old growth didn't come for decades after this. And the timber companies must have been very powerful at that time. Oh, they were, sure. And if you if you look at the land holdings of Weyerhaeuser and others, you could see how much property they had, how much a part of the, of the economy they were. I mean, timber, lumber, you know, cutting, milling was, you know, one of the very top revenue producers of the state. You mentioned the interpretive center at the Federation Forest State Park being named for a woman named Catherine Montgomery. Who was Catherine Montgomery? Yeah, well, this was an interesting part of researching the park and and uh, digging into it a little bit. So Catherine Montgomery was a teacher and then a teacher of teachers. She graduated from the University of Washington, and then she got a job in the late 1890s at the new Whatcom Normal School, which was a um, school for teachers and is now Western Washington University. She was a civic dynamo in Bellingham, 
I mean, she, in addition to her teaching responsibilities, teaching teachers, she was an avid outdoors woman and traveler. She put on a sort of arts and lecture series for the um, citizens of Bellingham. In what way was Catherine Montgomery representative of what women's clubs were trying to do and what, what they were all about? Yeah, well, she was one of the founders of a club in Bellingham called the Progressive Literary and Fraternal Club, Women's Club, founded in 1904. And it has some very interesting members. She was, of course, a member and founder of the club. And this this group was, was created to basically promote humanistic and progressive thinking in society. And the president of the club, Frances Axtell, was the one of the very first women elected to the Washington state legislature, one of the first two. A good friend of Montgomery's was also in the club and very well-known, Ella Higginson, who was an author, writer. She became poet laureate of Washington um, and was a dear friend. And I think this club kind of represents what many of these women's clubs were doing. I mean, some people have, you know, historians have written that Women's clubs were sort of at their their height of influence and organization in the late 1890s to the 1930s. Were they an outgrowth of the women's suffrage movement? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, there were several causes. One was the right to vote. And women in this state got the right to vote before most women in the country. They were, I think we were the fifth state to legalize women voting uh, in 1910. And that really changed uh, the political dynamic. Many of them had mobilized around issues like temperance, later prohibition, which was considered a progressive cause. And a lot of it, I think, had to do with just the, the growing middle class, the growing uh, needs of larger towns and city that were beyond the frontier period. And so you see these women's clubs in all parts of the state representing, you know, all kinds of ethnic groups and other groups of people and politically relatively diverse, but progressive in the sense that they wanted to make life here better for people. So they were part of a progressive movement which swept through Washington and other parts of the country. Yes, and I think they tended to focus on, not just on partisan things. I mean, there were Republicans and Democrats in all these clubs. They weren't politically exclusive or divided in in that way that we think of now. But they were focused on issues like family and child welfare. They started and supported hospitals. Prison reform was a big issue for many of them. They rallied around uh, getting uh, matrons and female police officers hired so that women would not suffer abuse in prisons and jails. Public health was another you know, big issue. And then, of course, as we mentioned, suffrage and prohibition. And they, in Seattle, they certainly flexed their political muscle right away. We had a, a pro-prostitution mayor, uh, Hiram Gill, and uh, they organized and had him recalled in 1911. So immediately after getting the vote, they threw him out. And people woke up to this. 
people woke up to the fact that women were starting to get elected to office, that they were taking new roles in the workforce. Um, many of the club values were played out through school teachers like Catherine Montgomery in public schools and in training teachers to appreciate citizenship, appreciate civic activities and civic involvement. And these women were exemplifying that through their works. And it was something they wanted to encourage. It's interesting because we've spent some time in the past talking about Aishel Curtis, the photographer of the Northwest who documented the industrialization and the modernization and the coming of age of the, of the Northwest in all its sort of mechanical and technological aspects. And yet it sounds like women were organized to better life generally and seemed organized in this network of clubs. Yeah, I think they saw that the civilizing influence was much needed. I mean, I mentioned jail reform. I mean, one one cause that some took up was eliminating the use of chain gangs in Seattle. Also putting pressure on the Seattle jail was considered a, a hellhole, one of the worst jails in the country, purposely. And they were part of that reform movement to make the jails at least cleaner and more humane and uh, the treatment of prisoners, male and female, more humane. I think they also recognize growing problems with there being no support for people who are on the bottom end of society in terms of poverty. And they saw this particularly through children. And so, you know, Children's Orthopedic Hospital and other uh, children's home uh, society these kinds of groups came out of the efforts of many uh, club women. And then many of them were highly educated and, you know, were coming together as college graduates and uh, whatnot to really talk about the future of society. What else do we know about Catherine Montgomery? Well, we know she was uh, traveled extensively. She and her friend Ella Higginson, the poet, took some, you know, major trips together, including going on a reporting trip. Higginson was writing a book about Alaska. And so these two women, unaccompanied, went up there and traveled through the tough post-gold <laughs> rush landscape uh, of Alaska to, in order to write about it. She was an avid outdoors person. And so something like this park, of course, was right up her alley. What is fascinating to me about the women's clubs is they seem to be very networked and organized to exert at least soft political power, if not real political power. Yeah, I think they wielded both. That is a very important part of their legacy, other than, you know, private charity work and uh, and that kind of thing. If you look through old newspapers, you'll see the society pages and whatnot filled with women's club announcements, lectures, teas, balls, <laughs> you know, they were part of building the sort of middle class social infrastructure 
They were often married to prominent businessmen or politicians or were themselves became politicians. Bertha Knight Landis, the first female mayor of a major American city, came out of the club movement and in this period of reform, you know, she was a real powerhouse on the city council and in the mayor's office. It reminds me of my mother told me once that when women got together to sew whether or make quilts, whenever it was back in the 1800s, what they were also doing was solving problems, solving problems in their own families and in society. And that was power. Yeah, I think I think that was acknowledged. There was such a narrow view of what a woman's place, quotes, mm-hmm. was, that it was really restricted to the home. In some senses, some people have said, you know, when talking about the local thing, is that there had been a number of very powerful women in the pioneer period. Sarah Yesler is a good example of, you know, activating the sort of uh, civic side of Henry Yesler's, whose sawmill virtually built Seattle. But she was really responsible for a lot of the civic activity. She founded the very first library in Seattle, just as an example. And so some would say in that pioneer period that women, um, there were some very strong, powerful uh, women. But I think it was at a whole new dimension later on in terms of education and political clout and um, becoming an influence in the political and business and social care network arena. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's, it's an amazing legacy that I think a lot of people aren't really aware of. And I think this park is, you know, this kind of amazing example of it. I can't think of another private civic group that, you know, went out and created a park of old growth for the public good at that time. I mean, we take environmental, ecological activity now, we take that kind of for granted, that there are all kinds of groups that do that. But this was kind of a unique thing. Between the Women's Federation of Clubs and Catherine Montgomery specifically, what was their vested interest in acquiring this forest land? I think it, I think it was partly aesthetic. It was part, partly valuing nature at its kind of grandest and least disturbed. Anybody who's walked in an old-growth forest, you know, probably looks at those trees and thinks, I can't believe they've been standing here for 500 or 1,000 years. So I think there was definitely a um, almost a spiritual sense of these things are of inherent value and they're not going to be around very much longer. I certainly didn't detect in the things I read any particular sense of the the biology or ecology in terms of, well, we have, gee, we have to save the environment or we have to um, preserve the areas around these patches of old growth. It was much more saving something that was very specific and unique. And they wanted it to be in an area where it would remain undisturbed. 
mean that by making it a state park, it would be undisturbed, but also that weather and encroachment by private development and whatnot would not be an issue. It might be hard for us to imagine their concern. We live in an area of the country and in an age where there are there is federally protected wilderness. We have national parks. We have state parks. We have conserved some land. But back in the teens and 20s, the rapacious cutting of old-growth forests was nonstop. And I can imagine that they thought all of this could be gone. Oh, I think they were right. I mean, almost all of it is gone. Uh, Nothing at the scale that existed when they mounted this effort out of, you know, fear that it would all be gone. It was a realistic fear. And it wasn't something that a lot of people acted on outside of you know, some of the uh, efforts. And I think Catherine Montgomery, she left another legacy apart from this park. Which was? Which was, she apparently was the first person to suggest creating the Pacific Crest Trail. And this was in the same time period when the clubs were gearing up to preserve the park. And she knew about the Appalachian Trail, which already existed. And she just thought, why don't we have one on the West Coast? Why don't we have one that goes from, you know, Mexico to Canada, up the Cascades and Sierras? How did she express the thought? How do we know that this idea came from her? Well, see, this is the interesting thing. I mean, there are various claimants to originating the Pacific Crest Trail, Uh, But some researchers in recent years did some study and found that she had a conversation with a man named Joseph Hazard, who was an avid mountaineer, climber. Uh, He was also a textbook salesman. And he came up to Bellingham to sell some textbooks and, you know, speak to the local climbing club. And she said, you know what we need? We need a trail that goes up the Pacific crest and he hadn't thought of it. He thought it was a good idea. And so he began to take this idea to various clubs. And we know about that conversation because he took notes. And so we have, you know, in his, in his notations, he notes the date of this conversation and um, it predates other conversations on the West Coast about doing such a trail. So she's she's been now dubbed as sort of the mother of the Pacific Crest Trail, certainly that idea. Now that's a legacy. Well, that's an amazing legacy. And she didn't throw herself into creating the trail, as far as I know. Uh, I mean, mean, I'm sure she was supportive of efforts, but she got the ball rolling. I mean, she's the one that sort of, you know, (laughs) pushed the snowball at the top of the hill. Right. And and then it finally I mean, it took decades to actually happen. But, yeah, it's an incredible legacy. And the interesting thing to me is that just if you go, you know, some miles beyond the Federation Forest Park, you're at Chinook Pass where the Pacific Crest Trail comes through. So you can actually go hike on the Pacific Crest Trail, you know, less than an hour's drive from from the park. And her connection with the park was solidified 
by the fact that, you know, the state found a new location for this park that met the requirements of, of protection and old growthness. <laughs> Catherine Montgomery purchased two extra acres for the state with her own money to create a little grove for her poet friend Ella Higginson. So there's a little poet's grove there. They've named the visitor's center after Catherine Montgomery. The park wasn't built and dedicated until 1949. So substantially after the idea of a women's club funded park first came. Catherine died in the late 1950s. After her death, her will gave her estate to the state to build out and take care of the park. And it was the equivalent in today's dollars of about a million dollars. And that was a complete surprise to everybody. It just was like, here's this huge bequest that can really bring this park up to its potential beyond simply preserving old growth, but providing a place where people can come and visit it. Thanks for listening to Mossback. If you'd like to see all the episodes from this season of Mossback's Northwest, you can find them at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its eighth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every Thursday night through November. This episode of the Mossback Podcast was produced by Seth Halloran, and the story editors were Sarah Bernard and Sarah Menzies. Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. And check out the show notes if you want to get in touch or learn more about each topic we cover. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docuseries we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly Mossback newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode.